Great. Um, I'd love you to turn your Bible to John chapter 19. Um, and it's taken us four years, but today we've got to the resurrection. Um, and today we are going to celebrate the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus is alive. So if this is your first time at Globe, you, you could not have picked a better Sunday to come. We spent four years working up to this point, and you get to benefit from all our hard work, so we rejoice in that. But we're going to pick up um, um, from John 19. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus is hanging dead on a cross. And this is what happens next. This is John um, 19 and verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Two weeks ago, uh, Mike was preaching. And he was preaching on the moment when Jesus died from John 19. And in John 19, Jesus, his last cry is, it is finished. And two weeks ago, we thought about that cry. And we thought about the, the power of that cry, the, the moment when it sums up that Jesus has finished the work he came to do. Jesus sent from the Father, the Son of God, sent into the world to die on a cross to save the world, to bear the sins of the world, to, to be the, the Lamb of God. And as Jesus died, he cries, it's finished. It's done. It's all over. And we celebrated that two weeks ago. We said, wow, what a moment when Jesus died and he finished the work. But maybe there's been a nagging doubt. 
I think if you think about it, you would feel a nagging doubt. I do. You see, here is Jesus saying, it's finished. I've done it. I finished the work I came to do. But I look around the world and it doesn't look finished, does it? There still seems to me to be a lot of stuff in our world that doesn't quite look like Jesus has finished the job. Has he really finished? Or are we as Christians just supposed to kind of ignore the bad stuff, put on a nice smile and go, yay, Jesus is great. And we sing our songs and we put on a fake smile and we all pretend that everything's okay. It's finished. Like that stupid old song, you know, pack up your troubles in an old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. Is that what we're supposed to do? Leave your troubles at the door, pretend for a little while that everything's well with the world. Jesus has finished the work. It's impossible to do that, isn't it? And here's the thing, right? I look around this world and I see a mess in our world. So much mess. I see so much that is still painful. I still see so much of death and of suffering. I look around and it just doesn't look finished. There still seems to be a lot of work to be done. I see the mess all around me, don't you? Isn't that the mess that causes you to grieve? Isn't that the mess that causes you pain? It's the mess of the world we live in. I see it all around me, scattered around. But perhaps even more unnervingly, when I look into my heart, I see a mess. I still see stuff that's not right. I find I have desires and actions that I don't want. Things that I don't want to do. Things that frustrate me. Things I don't don't want to live that way, but I still find myself living that way. I don't want to be that sort of person, and yet still I find myself being that person. And so it makes me wonder, what exactly did Jesus finish when he died on the cross? Because there's a lot of mess in our world, and there's a lot of mess still in me. And although I can't see your heart, my guess is there's a lot of mess still in you. So what exactly has Jesus finished? And is this just all a silly make-believe in order to make us feel psychologically a little bit better about ourselves? An emotional crutch for the weak who can't really face the realities of the world. That's what we get told, isn't it? You can't cope with the real world, and so you have to have some kind of pathetic little fairy story that you can cling on to to make you feel better. They're there. If it makes you feel better, you believe it. Easter Sunday is what matters. And what we're going to see today, and honestly, we're scratching the the surface of this, right? I'm going to show you two things that I think John underlines. Two things that John says, this is how you know it really is finished. Two big things. But before we get to it, we need to set the scene and it would be easy to skip over those last verses of chapter 19, wouldn't it? The kind of, you know, that, the action, you know, Jesus died on the cross and then he rises again. There's this bit in the middle. But let's not skip this. These are moving verses, right? This is poignant. All that's left of Jesus is a body. 
I know it's not particularly pleasant to think of, but I think it matters to us that we, that we see that. There's a corpse, a dead corpse. There's no breath, there's no life, there's no spark, there's nothing, just a shell of a human being. That's all that's left of Jesus. And it's hanging there on the cross. And then extraordinarily, two men act in a remarkable way. You see, they look at this corpse hanging on the cross and they think, we need to do something. The first one is this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Notice that he is described as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So he's begun to kind of be fascinated by Jesus. He's part of the Jewish ruling council. He's, he's sort of part of the in-Jewish crowd. And so he's been fascinated by Jesus, but knows that most of his mates in the kind of leadership of the Jews hate Jesus and want him killed. So he's been following Jesus secretly because he knows that otherwise he'll lose his status, he'll lose his position, he'll, things will get very uncomfortable for him. Don't you think it's weird that it is the point that Jesus dies that he suddenly finds the courage to go public? Isn't that interesting? Because in many ways, it's kind of over, right? Oh, he was a good bloke, but he's dead now, so I can sort of ignore him. No, there's something about the death of Jesus which makes this man, Joseph, suddenly find the courage to go up to Pilate, the Roman leader, and say, can I have the body? Can I take the body? You see, this man's been a secret disciple, but seeing Jesus die means he doesn't stay secret anymore. And I want you to know this, right? The death of Jesus on the cross has the power to take someone who is lacking courage and hiding away and to say, no, this is it. Jesus is the real deal. Look what he's done. Look at his death. Joseph, suddenly when he sees that Jesus has died, and I don't know how much he understood. I don't know if he understood that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was dying for the sin of the world. I don't know what he understood, but he understood enough to say, I've got to do something. I'm going public. I want to honor this man. And so there's Joseph. And if you're surprised that Joseph of Arimathea there, you'll be even more surprised to find Nicodemus is his helper. Nicodemus is another of the Jewish leaders. We met him back in chapter 3. He came at night. He was very skeptical about Jesus. He mocked Jesus. You're daft saying that people have to be born again. What are you talking about? But over the course of John's gospel, this man Nicodemus has seen more and more of Jesus. He showed up later on in John's gospel, and he was the one who said, hang on, shouldn't Jesus get a fair trial? And bit by bit, this man Nicodemus has come from a place of skepticism and hostility to a place of, or maybe, to a place of devotion, adoration. And so Nicodemus brings 35 kilograms. That's a lot, right? We've got some weights in our front room. We have teenage boys. This is what happens. We have a weight rack in our front room. And um, I ignore it most of the time except when I have to move it. It's, right, the 25-kilogram plate, the delivery driver, right, who delivered it, he dragged it from his van, right? These weights, he dragged them. This 25-kilogram thing, he dragged it around. He phoned halfway from his van to say, are you in? Because this is very heavy. 
He dragged it and he brought it to us. Look, my point is 35 kilograms is a pretty decent amount of spices. And yet, there's a devotion. Again, what is it that took Nicodemus from skepticism to belief? It was the death of Jesus. The cross, the death of Jesus is powerful. It still has power today to change lives. It still has power today to take people from the most deep skepticism to a place of adoration and exuberant worship. That's the word. You see, they've seen this Jesus is something who and someone who is worth honoring. And so they honor him in his death. They wrap him in linen. They put these spices with him and they find a tomb, a new tomb, and they lay him in the tomb. I think that's a pretty moving scene. But that's all that's left. A dead body who two men are willing to honor. You think of the thousands of people who queued up to file past the queen, her dead body. The queen of the United Kingdom lying there. Thousands of people streaming past. Only two for Jesus. Only two. And he's the king of kings. So it's a poignant scene and it leaves you saying, well, watch really finished. Okay, here we go. Right, let's get into this. Two big things. Two big things that if you can get these, you will understand what Jesus means when he said it is finished. First thing, it is finished. There is a whole new world. There's a whole new world. You might say, what are you talking about? Have a look. Chapter 20, verse 1. You've got to listen carefully. to like John chooses his words deliberately. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Right, ring any bells. First day of the week, darkness. Chuck in a garden from chapter 19, and you surely you're beginning to see that John is not picking words from random. Where does the Bible start? Well, it starts with the first day of the week, and it was dark. And remember, how did John start his gospel? In the beginning was the word. How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look, here is what John is showing you. On that Easter Sunday morning, a new creation began. It was a second creation. That's what John wants you to see. You see, that first creation that God spoke into being on the first day of the week, as God said, let there be light, and there was light, as that first creation came into being, that is the world that we live in. It's the world that we enjoy, but it's the world that we have spoiled. It's the world that we have destroyed. It's the world that by our rebellion and our sin now hangs under God's curse and his condemnation of death. That's the world we live in. And what Jesus did was come into that world, this first creation, but he came into this creation in order that he might bring a new creation. And on that first Sunday morning, when he rose from the dead, he was the first moment of the new creation. He was the first moment 
of a whole new world. Those of you who know me well will know that at this point I'm being very restrained. <laughs> because everything in me wants to sing Disney's Aladdin a whole... I can show you the... Oh, I've given up. Look at that. It didn't last long. A whole new world. A new fantastic point of view. Listen, the reason I quote it, right, is because actually the reason that song was so popular, and it really is very popular, um, the reason is because it speaks to a yearning within us. What do we yearn for? We yearn for a whole new world. Because we look around this one and we see that it's messed up. We've already agreed that. We see the suffering and the death and the pain and the tears and the war, and we see it, and it grieves us. And what we all ache for is a new world. A world where this old order has passed away. That's what we ache for. And on that first Sunday morning, it started. You see, look what we're told while it was still dark. I mean, it, oh, it's crackling with energy. Can't you feel it, right? It's like these words. Wow, it was still dark, early, first day. You know what it's like when you get, when you get up early in the morning, um, some of you, and you know, you're going to go, go on holiday or catch something, and it's early morning. The, the day is like fresh, and it's so much anticipation, like electricity running through you. You know what I mean? You get that same moment here, something so new. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. She's not expecting anything. She's not expecting anything to have changed. She just wants to go to see Jesus. She just wants to go to the place where they've buried him. But the stone is gone. She doesn't know anything yet. She comes running to Simon and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. As I said last time, that's John talking about himself. I know it's a strange description of himself. I get that. But it's the way that John kind of talks about himself. I don't think he's being arrogant. I think he's just talking about the way he relates to Jesus. He loved me. I think he writes it and it blows his mind. Anyway, so she comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple and says, they've taken Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So she's not anticipating anything. Interesting. Do you notice how much running there is in chapter 20? Do you notice how, what a contrast it is to Joseph and Nicodemus? Do you think they ran anywhere? No, I imagine as they took the body down, it was very slow and serious. They walked slowly. And suddenly in chapter 20, they all start running. And it is funny, isn't it? Because John does seem very keen to let us all know that he was the fastest. I do love this about John. You can imagine John and Peter in their, probably not in their old age, because Peter was killed, but you can imagine them. It's the first, first four. There it is. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then in case you'd forgotten, he says it again later in. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside <laughs> Got to love that. But there's loads of running because there's an energy about this day because this is the beginning of a whole new world. This is the beginning of a new creation. 
You see, although they don't realize it yet, the reason that the stone has been removed, the reason that there is no body in the grave is not because anyone's moved him, but because the body has been raised. The body is alive again. Now, I know that most of us sitting in this room already know this. We know that Jesus came back to life again. But you've got to feel the significance this afternoon of this. You've got to see it's more than just a happy ending. You know, the action happened at the cross. Jesus paid for sin. He did all of that stuff. Oh, and then he rose again. That's really nice. That's happy. No, no, no. The resurrection is world-changing, literally. New creation bringing. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, his body, it, it was his body, right? The body was gone. But his body was changed. This is new creation. Right, listen really carefully to this. This is new creation. God did not say, right, Jesus, you're done with your body. We can chuck that away. That's finished. Uh, let's have some, let's, I'll make you something else. Have a better body. That's not what God did. What God did was he said, I will now take that earthly body. I will take that first creation body. And I will make that body new. And so there was no body left because he was still using it. It's just that the body he now has is different to the body he had before. It's the same but new. Because once Jesus had risen from the dead again, listen, he, didn't, he wasn't dying anymore. He wasn't getting older. He didn't decay anymore. No longer was Jesus tempted by sin. Yes, when he was in his earthly body, he was tempted in every single way. But not anymore. He's been through death, smashed through death. And now sin doesn't have a hold on him. He's risen to a new creation. He's gone through death. Every other person who's ever died has gone into death and stayed there. Death has a 100% record. It holds on to everybody that it takes. Until that Easter Sunday morning, when death suddenly realized this one's different, what is going on? Death, it's 100% record, it's supreme rule over all dead people. Suddenly it was like, what is going on with this one? This one's, this one's harder. This one's fighting. This one's stronger. This one's too powerful. This one's defeated me. And Jesus takes death and he defeats it. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus because Jesus is too strong. And on that Easter Sunday morning, the first creation body of Jesus was transformed to be a new creation body. And you might say, who cares? Why does it matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to you if you follow him. I don't do much sewing. Anyway, um, no, um, I, I don't do much sewing, but I do understand this. If you thread a piece of thing through the needle, it's very difficult, but if you manage to do it, if the needle goes through, so does the thread. If the, if the thread is connected to the needle, wherever the needle goes, the thread follows. 
And that's how the Bible talks about you as a Christian. You are united to Jesus. You're joined with Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, you go. So if Jesus smashes through the grave, you follow. And of course, the thread doesn't go through at the same time as the needle. There's a delay. And if it's a very long piece of thread, the bit at the back might be quite a long time before it finally gets through. But it will get through because the needle went through. And this is what the Bible says is true of everybody who's joined to Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just come to pay for your sins so you don't have to feel guilty anymore. Jesus came to take you from first creation to new creation, from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. That's what he came to do for you. That's what he did on that first Easter Sunday morning. It's a whole new world, and it's begun because Jesus is alive. And if your brain isn't blown yet, then let me push it even further because it's not just you who's going to be made new. Our whole world is going to be made new. Our whole creation is going to be remade. What is God going to do with our world? He's not going to chuck it away and say, oh, forget that, let's make a new one. Because just like he did with the body of Jesus, it's a pattern that all will follow. And so what God will do is take our planet, our beautiful planet, this earth, this wonderful earth that God has created, and he will remake it and he will renew it, and he will refresh it, and he will make all things right. And we will live forever and ever with new bodies in a new creation with a king who gets us there. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't joking. And if Jesus has gone through, we can be sure we will too. It may be that for some of you, um, death feels particularly close at the moment. I don't know your situations. It may be that for some of you, if that's true for you today, I want you to hear this as a particular promise. That Jesus does know he has defeated death and he will take all those who are united to him into his new creation. Do you know the weird thing is this is what our world is longing for? People are longing for resurrection. Let me, let me, um, you know when people go on X Factor and they stand in front of Simon Cowell and they, you know, I believe I can fly. And um, they just humiliate themselves. And it's like, you, what are you doing? Do you know why they do it? Because Simon Cowell has the power of resurrection. In our world, Simon Cowell has the power of resurrection because he has the power to take you from rubbish life to the life you dreamed of. This is why the stories that get us, the stories that are most popular, the ones, I used to stack shelves in Asda. My life was so empty and meaningless. But now, that's resurrection. It's what everybody in our world wants. Why do people play the lottery? Because the lottery offers them resurrection. Why do people want to get a good university degree? Why do people want to get a good life? Why do people emigrate to America or to Australia? Or why do they then emigrate here? Why, what are people doing? We're always, no criticism of anyone who's emigrated anywhere. I don't care. Do, we're looking for new life. We're, we're desperate for something that will take me from this rubbish life to this glorious life. But the problem is nothing can do it. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus truly has the power to beat death because wherever you go, you will still die. 
Even if you're living in a beautiful Hawaiian shack on the beach, you will still die. That's what stuffs everything up. Unless there's someone who can defeat it. Jesus has gone ahead of you and he's defeated it. And it started on that first Easter Sunday morning. So yeah, I look around the world and I see there's a lot of stuff that's messed up. A lot of stuff that is heartbreaking. But then I look at Easter Sunday morning and I say, Jesus has begun a new creation. It's not finished yet. There's still a lot of thread to pull through. But he has started it. And he will finish it. And sometimes even with tears running down your face, you have to say, Jesus, I believe that you will take me to your new creation and that I will see you and I will be in the place where there is no more death. I think that's stunning. I don't know how, I don't know how you survive in this world if you don't believe in Jesus. It's so bleak. And this is so glorious. But there is one other thing. And this is even more exciting. How do you know it's really finished? Well, I want to suggest the second thing is there's a pile of linen. That's the second thing. There's a whole new world and there's a pile of linen. Did you notice that John is quite obsessed with linen? Let me just read it to you again. For a start, he's wrapped in linen in chapter 19. We read that earlier. Have a look at verse... Five. He, that's John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. There's a lot of detail about linen, isn't there? In fact, I'd go so far as to say, you know, in the church Bibles, and probably lots of your Bibles, at the top of... Top of Chapter 20, it says the empty tomb, right? Th- those headings are not part of the original text. They were added in later to help us find our way around. Normally, they're useful. That is rubbish. Was the tomb empty? No. In fact, John goes to great lengths to show you the tomb wasn't empty. Yes, there was no body in it, but there was something in it. There was a pile of linen. And you may go, oh, for goodness sake, he's lost it this time. Give me five minutes, and I will show you why this linen will cause your heart to worship. In fact, maybe even some of you here will be moved to write a worship song about the linen. I'm singing about the linen, (laughs) what joy it's bringing, (laughs) this sort of thing. All right, let's go for it then. What is this then? What am I talking about? Why is John so obsessed with the linen? Well, I'd love you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, it's on page 118. And it will help you to look at this to see it, just to make sure I'm not making things up. Have a Leviticus 16, verse 3. This is, this is the day of atonement, right? This is the day when sin was dealt with before Jesus came. This is what they were to do. Um, they had to offer sacrifices. 
the high priest. Have a look, verse 3. Aaron is the high priest. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must wash himself with water before he puts them on. Isn't that interesting? Someone else obsessed with linen. There seems to be quite a linen thing going on. Why? Well, the priest, the high priest, who was to go into the most holy place of the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt, a place no one would dare go because of sin. Only once a year the priest could go in, and he could only go in if he was wearing linen. And his job was to go in and offer sacrifices for the people. He was to offer the sacrifice that would bring forgiveness and atonement that would would, would mean the people could be right with God. It was a very, very big day. Here's the detail I want you to notice, though. Once he's finished, have a look at verse 13. Sorry, no, not verse 13. Have a look at verse um, 23. He's done all the sacrifices. He's offered the goats. he's, He's done a whole load of stuff. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He's to leave them. If you could have gone into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement when the sacrifices were all done, what would you find? You'd find a pile of linen. A pile of linen that would tell you The priest has finished his work. It's done. You see, on the Day of Atonement, you're standing outside the temple. It's a really important deal because if the priest stuffs it up, you are in trouble with God. You are under God's anger, his condemnation because of your sin. So you're standing outside. You watch the priest go in. You have no idea what's going on in there. You're waiting. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You're waiting for him to come out. Because it's only when he comes out, when he takes off the linen, leaves it behind, and comes out of the holy place, it's only then that you know the sin is dealt with completely. Only then. And so on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus, the great high priest, the one who came to bring perfect atonement, the one who came to deal with God's anger, the one who came to deal with our sin, the one who came to bring us and God together to reconcile us, the one who came to be both the lamb and the priest, the one who doesn't offer an animal but offers himself. On Easter Sunday morning, he took off his linen garments and he came out. He came out. And the reason it matters is because it means that your sin, what what brings you into conflict with God is dealt with completely by Jesus. He paid for it all. It's finished. And so as I look at the mess within my own heart, as I look at the frustration I feel as a Christian, as I look at the ways I still get it wrong, I'm still selfish, I still do things I don't want to do, I still act in ways I don't want to act, I know that there is a priest who has done everything to deal with my sin. 
it is finished. And so when I find temptation coming, and when I feel like a failure, and I feel guilty, I feel like such a rubbish Christian, there's a pile of linen. The priest has dealt with it completely. He has paid the penalty, but he has also broken the power of sin. When he came out of the grave, sin no longer has the same hold on you it once did. Yes, we still struggle with it. Yes, we still find it hard. We still feel tempted. We still get it wrong. We still fail. But sin no longer controls us like it once did. Sin has a different relationship to us. And we now, because of Jesus, are able to say, sin, no. There's a pile of linen in the tomb. My priest has dealt with this once and for all. You do not accuse me. You cannot hold me anymore. And so on that Easter Sunday morning, as Jesus rose from the dead, it's proof that atonement has been made. You are right with God. You are forgiven if you trust him. And you will defeat your sin as you live with him. Yes, there's a battle to go. Yes, there's a struggle, but you don't fight in despair. You fight in hope because sin is defeated. So is it finished? I look at the world around me. It doesn't look finished. But Jesus says, he's risen. There's a whole new world. And as I look at the mess inside me, it doesn't feel finished. But I look at Jesus and see there's a pile of linen. The decisive battle has been won. And one day that sin will be removed completely. When you walk the streets of the new Jerusalem, when you see him face to face, what a day. This is why the resurrection matters. The resurrection changes everything. And if you know Jesus is risen, I pray that you will leave this place this evening with your head held high, your eyes fixed on Jesus. And even when suffering comes, and even when sin crouches at your door, you say, but he's risen. He's alive. I can trust him. So I plead with you this afternoon, please trust him. Trust that he's alive. We haven't got time to do all the historical evidence. It's a fact of history he's risen. John saw it and he believed. And he wrote it down for you. So this afternoon, wherever you find yourself, whatever it is you're struggling with, know that Jesus is alive. And if you're sitting here and you're not yet a Christian, and you need to be. <laughs> what are you faffing around that? Jesus is risen from the dead. What are you waiting for? Trust him. Connect yourself to him. Find life in him. Find freedom and forgiveness in him. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we praise you this afternoon. We praise you because Jesus is risen. We praise you because there is a new creation, a whole new world. 
We praise you because there's a pile of linen. He's finished his work. It's done. Our sin is forgiven. We are atoned for. We're right with you. Our Father, this afternoon, please, with this fact of history, this day, this Sunday morning, transform our lives and transform our eternities, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.